Hey there, welcome back to another episode of Owens Recovery Science Podcast. This is Johnny Owens. Today we've got our Speaking with the Experts podcast, and we're going to discuss soccer. Or uh, if you're on the other side of the pond or outside the U.S., um, I guess you guys call it football. Um, but anyways, it's going to be a good one. We're going to talk about buffalo restriction applications um, for the soccer athlete for recovery from injuries, recovery post games, and then even some performance stuff. Um, I've got some good friends and great guests on today. Reed Whitney um, from the Chicago Fire. I've got Paul Lombardo from the Sounders Football Club up in Seattle. And I have Kurt Andrews with Sporting KC, all from the MLS. They've been doing BFR um, for quite some time now, and they've got some great insights. So hope everyone enjoys it. Here we go. This is the Owens Recovery Science Podcast. Hosted by physical therapist Johnny Owens. All right, and welcome back to uh, another Owens Recovery Science podcast. I'm super stoked about today's podcast because we get to talk a little, a little soccer, um, a sport that's near and dear to my heart. I, I love it, and, and being from West Texas. Took a lot of ridicule um, and, and loving soccer when when all it was was football. So today's going to be a fun talk, and I got I got uh, some experts from here in the United States working in the MLS with us today. Um, and and so I've got Reed Whitney, who who I've known for a while, and he he's out in Chicago with the Chicago Fire. Just to read his bio, he's in his third year with Chicago Fire. Um, it's, it's longer than that, right, Reed? At this point. Third year. Uh, this this the third year with this team. Third year with this team. Okay, and, and then before you, you were with FC Dallas. He's got a master of science in kines and rehab from freaking a University of Hawaii, dude. Nice. It nice. was not the worst place to be. Yeah. Yeah. No, okay. I'll say that. Um, bachelor of science degree in, in athletic training at the University of Tampa. Uh, this is such a read sentence here. He loves his girlfriend Liana ultra running and his beard <laughs> and pushing the boundaries of the profession through an integrated use of modern technology and progressive rehab methods. So I'm glad you put your girlfriend before your beard. So that's, that's good, man. It was you a have to. strategic choice. Game time decision, but it was a smart one. Hey, you need to update that though. That's a fiance now. Oh, fiance. Well, there you that's go. That's true. Yeah. Get on, yeah, on the site and change I, that. I don't speak French. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Today we have Paul Lombardo. Um, he's in his ninth year in the MLS, his fifth year with the Seattle Sounders up in the great Northwest. He's the lead ATC up there. Uh, his previous work in the MLS was three years at FC Dallas. Um, as I say, all good things come out of Texas. His responsibilities include assisting all aspects of the medical care, injury prevention, treatment and rehab, and overall well-being of all the first-team players. His mission is to use his skills as an AT to help and heal professional athletes so they can perform at their highest potential. Paul went to University of Nevada, Nevada, Las Vegas, which is another one of those colleges I wish I would have tried out at least for a year or two to see how it went. Um, Bachelor of Science in Athletic Training and has a Master's of Science in Rehab. Master's of Science in Rehab Sciences from California University of Pennsylvania. So thanks for coming on, Paul, as well. And then we have Kurt uh, representing the Midwest as well uh, from Sporting KC. Um, He's the Director of Sports Medicine um, and oversees the club's technical staff. Um, he's a Michigan native, arrives in KC after six seasons at the LA Galaxy, um, during which time he was part of two MLS Cup championships. He had to throw that in there. He's participated in MLS uh, Soccer's annual medical symposium in each of the past seven years, 
also completing U.S. Soccer's Recognized to Recover Concussion Awareness Program. He's got his Bachelor's of Science in Exercise Science and a Master's of Athletic Training, um, and also uh, National Athletic Trainers Association, National Academy of Sports Medicine, and uh, previously at Exos, among other national organizations. So, Kurt, thanks for coming on as well, man. Johnny, thanks for having me. Yeah, and as we mentioned, you win the, the Best Hair Award um, of the entire podcast today. So cool. So th- this is going to be good, man. Um, so I'd love to to talk sports specific with blood flow restriction. And, and I'm kind of hoping to go along a continuum here from what you guys are doing with it clinically to get players back after injury. Um, maybe what you're doing for kind of performance. Um, and, and then this kind of catch all bucket, which I hate the term. It needs a better definition, but recovery um, or, or restoring players back to baseline quickly to get them ready for the next match. And, and then any other kind of things you're, you're looking out there, injury prevention or stuff like that. So I guess, you know, I'm, I'm not in your, in your world. And, and a lot of what we've done in BFR has, has been up to this point with the NFL and the NBA and MLB, totally different kind of sports than, than soccer. So from an injury perspective, you guys just kind of break down like what you guys see Throughout the season, what what's your kind of nagging things you deal with all the time? Uh, I'd say um, for us, I mean, up in the Northwest, I mean, any soccer lower extremity sport, basically soft tissue injuries tend to be the uh, most seen and dealt with for a soccer player. I mean, as a former soccer player, you know, you see things that you normally don't see all the time, but uh, those, you know, the ankle injuries, the knee injuries and stuff like that. I mean, it is a contact sport, so you do see some uh, of those contusion type of injuries um but the big one is the uh, soft tissue for us i would i would say yeah to echo off that i mean you're going to get a lot of adductor hamstring calf quad injuries for the most part uh something we deal with quite often too are your tendinopathies or overuse injuries uh, obviously dealing with not only the first club but the first team but you look at your usl club and, and obviously your academy kids as well you, you get a plethora of uh, of lower limb injuries, uh, a lot of them being overuse, and, and that's kind of something we all, uh, along this continuum of, of performance, have to work alongside performance staff and and try to mitigate those types of injuries as well. I think the amount of load management injuries is kind of uh, something I'm most interested in. Is uh, they've been categorized as overuse, but really it's just misuse. I think a lot of times. If you know the guy's training load, you can really understand if they are overused relative to somebody else who is underused, and then it is acutely overused. So how you can you know build people up or maintain them or whatever you need to do based on if they suffer from some of those OLD injuries, depending on the, the team. Yeah. So that's uh, becoming more and more important with some of those hormonal levels that may be starting to taper off as guys get older. How much are you guys tracking in the MLS using technology to to measure load and, and and things like that? You know, every every professional organization seems to be looking for their latest and greatest technology to to track these things. And especially over in Europe, it seems like with the groups we're working with, is that pretty big in the MLS as well? Yeah, I would say so. Um, for us, we use um, I don't want to plug any particular type of company, but we do use a a load program or a load device to track players distance movement counterbalance stuff all that kind of is being used throughout the year but again that's also player acceptance of using it um that's a big one we tend to find as players tend not to want to wear it during a game 
So we can't always continually get them every day or every time they do any kind of exercise or on any kind of field work because sometimes they choose not to wear it. That's another uh, battle for us. I don't know about for the rest of the, the, the two on the, on the talk here, but. Lack of compliance will defeat the purpose of, of those kind of programs. And what we were seeing, you know, and, and reported, especially in the early days, is just this data overload is you're just getting so much from that that you start to wonder, you know, what, what you can even do with it or what you could do to change really, you know, what, what, what does it look like for your schedules? Um, just to kind of break down. So we know what kind of load management you're looking at from a, from a game perspective to a training perspective, take me through like a typical work week for you guys. Go ahead, Kurt. You're the one with the CONCACAF, so you have a little more games going on. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Yeah, I mean, obviously every organization is going to be a little bit different. Um, all coaches have different tactical approaches in terms of how they prepare for their weeks as well. Uh, for us, it's been kind of a hectic preseason and, and even beginning of the season being in Champions League. Uh, one of the big things was the first Champions League game was in Toluca, which is just under 9,000 feet in elevation. So uh, for us, it was in our preseason, in our approach, is getting guys intense, uh, kind of getting them acclimated to what it would be like to play. Um, and then obviously the week before, we went to Toluca, we trained in Albuquerque. So we, we were able to expose them with an actual physical load rather than just sleeping at, at the appropriate elevation area, at an elevation we want them at. Um, for us, it's been pretty much three games a week where you play a Sunday, Wednesday, Saturday, or a Sunday, Wednesday, Sunday. Uh, and then it's just in, in your load management or in your preparation for the next game, it's just a recover, prepare, play, recover, prepare, play. And, and it's easy for the 11 to 14 that are kind of getting actual minutes. Uh, the trick is how do you manage the load of the players that are 14 through 22 or 24, depending on how big your roster is. So uh, one through 11 are getting constant minutes if you're not rotating your lineups. And, and again, it's going to be your approach and how you want to play different opponents. And that comes down to us and, and performance staff also with technical staff and the coaches and developing game plans for individuals and, and how we want to get them through each week. Pretty much the same across the board for the group here then, I, I, I imagine. Uh, yeah, I mean, for us, we have the same. Uh, managing those players, managing the guys that aren't uh, getting the minutes that the first 11 may be getting. Um, again, it's just compliance. You know, Can we get those guys to do what we need them to do to get those to get that those numbers we need to help them manage? Yeah. Some of the biggest thing is uh, guys that maybe didn't do anything in the off season versus guys who maybe did way too much and getting them back onto a somewhat regular training schedule and travel schedule. Uh, we did a preseason in Europe this year. So guys coming back and then we went back to the East coast and we've been doing lots of travel for that without necessarily the same type of game. So it was our, our travel schedule has been, uh, relatively easy once we started games but just getting guys into a normal routine getting their families into routines getting their them to know where the stadium is how long traffic is things like that all affects how much time they're able to dedicate to their recovery preparation and then gameplay what, what is there's the, so many intangibles that we just oh, try to line up to take the stress off from what you can control in your 
clinic or locker room for recovery, taking out the mental components uh, that we know are a problem in logistics. What what are your go-tos or your, your saying, this is what I want to do to help someone physiologically recover? And we can start spinning this into ischemic preconditioning, blood flow restriction, everything else that you might do, just to, to kind of see from a soccer perspective. Post-game, the guy's hurting. Day later, the guy's sore. Whatever, I got a game coming up. Are you specifically looking at anything treatment-wise? For for us, <clears throat> I like to use – I like to throw on a bilateral uh, cuffs on, on guys and get them on the bike um, again education getting these guys on what we're trying to do what we're trying what it's trying to do and trying to speak to them in a in a less i guess scientific way to they can understand it is another key thing to work to think about but we get them on i've got a couple guys personally that they have gotten on and like tried it they liked it and they continue to do it but again it's it's a hit or miss. I mean, it's not like we don't have a re- specific regiment or a specific time to do it. They're just like, Hey, can, can I do some BFR today? I'm like, Oh, okay. Yeah, let's go. Let's do it. You know, like there's, there's no, like, doesn't from this, from the, all the papers and stuff we've read or been presented like, there's really no residual to me. I've found there's no residual um, soreness or anything from guys doing it after a game or even after a hard stress, a hard training session, and it helps, I think, in their mind, like, hey, I can still do something right. without getting without getting myself hurt or put and being any kind of any issue the next day. Yeah, yeah. How about you guys? Reed? I think the the intensity that um, not the intensity, sorry, the uh, the pressure that gets applied when we have guys like the the day after a game doing a, a regen ride on the bike or a regen elliptical, something low impact that you would do fifteen or twenty minutes. Well, now I can throw the cups on them. And that's a good introduction if they've never done it. You know, I know 80% is usually what you'd need for lower extremity, but I'll start them at 65, 70. So then they don't hate me. Yeah. Yeah. It's their first exposure is okay. Well, that was really difficult, but you know, it's tolerable. And then they get off and they, I say, text me this afternoon, four or five hours from now, let me know how you feel. And oddly enough, a lot of them are like, Hey, I usually need to like crash and have a nap the next day. I feel better. My legs are not as heavy. I actually went and played at the park with my kids, you know, like things like that, that they would normally not have felt with just a 20 minute random. Okay. I'm going to pedal at 50 Watts and don't get anything out of it because it's just not quite enough stimulus. Right. But you can have that same kind of mechanical stress and get a much bigger stimulus. Yeah. And they end up thinking, thinking us later. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say, uh, I mean, here on our regen days, the, the guys that played significant minutes, so more than 16 minutes, they have a three by six or three by eight run as their regen session. Um, something that we've kind of toyed around with, and, and obviously with BFR and, and doing it in the team setting, it's, it's the applicability and having uh, a numerous amount of units to do it. Uh, so that, that's where it becomes kind of difficult in our setting, mm-hmm. uh, just from a financial perspective. But uh, is even doing BFR in a passive state, you hook them up to a complex machine or some sort of stimulation device, just have them on the table, uh, you include pressure, and then obviously just have them sit there for a 20, 25 minute cycle. And after they can, after the 20 minute session, and then even 12, 24 hours later, they can feel a difference in terms of feeling lighter, feeling fresher, feeling, um, I guess, 
regenerated or, or more regenerated than what they were. Um, so it's kind of something we've been toying around with here, uh, obviously within the, within the means that we're allowed because you can do about one person per session. So, yeah. Yeah. it's something I, you know, it's almost like case studies right now. And then I think there's this, this kind of spectrum of recovery that we're looking at now. And, and Dr. Patterson and I presented at combined sections, he's kind of the IPC, one of the IPC experts out there. And, you know, and it's, it's your most basic, if you need to do it, you know, at the most passive level is just BFR passively or ischemic precondition. It, it seems like if you're going to ischemic precondition, you probably have to go to full occlusion. And like Reed said, when you blast someone full occlusion the first time, they they might punch you in the face and never come back. Um, and, and that's mm-hmm. always the message you want to get out there, too. You know, it's it, it's not like you have to start everyone at 80 percent. You know, we, we do all these total joint trials now, and I'm not starting Grandma Smith at 80 percent. We'll build her up to it. Um, but she's not going to tolerate it. And, and athletes sometimes are, are like Grandma Smith's, um, as we know, where, where they, they're very sensitive. Um, and then as they get used to the occlusion, then uh, um, the next level of passive is with, with a complex or E-STEM or something like that. And, and, and it seems like maybe ischemic preconditioning is what can, can maybe blunt muscle damage, potentially. We're not sure. There's a lot of, of things we're looking at. So if you're slowing muscle damage, then as you start getting some sort of active contraction with it, like E-STEM at the lowest level, then the next thing would be, like Paul said, exercise with it. Then you're getting the maybe the muscle protein synthetic response. So if you get this like one-two punch of I, I blunted some muscle damage and I've got muscle protein synthesis, then from a muscle's perspective, you, you've really helped a muscle recover um, quite a bit. And so I, that's what we're trying to look at across the leagues here is – is what's ever, you know, the baseball guys, it's funny because baseball was so antiquated in a lot of the stuff they do. And and one of the things they do do, though, is they kind of have these, I don't know, like in, built in lore post like ex- pitchers, like arm exercises, you know, and you know, out there with a one or two pound weight and some bands doing stuff. But then throwing cuffs on and having those guys do it, it, it seems like we're getting a lot of anecdotal reports and and now even some, you know, an MLB spring training study that's going on right now of, of seeing these guys are like, man, my arm feels much better the next day. Um, so it, it'll be interesting to see in, in soccer, you know, is, is there a, a faster recovery that's measurable? And, and it would be such an easy thing to look at, I think, in your sport is, you know, just looking at maybe a sprint time the next day or two of, of could these guys get back to maybe what their baseline sprint is. Um, did this get them to to get that that power back a little bit quicker, or with some of your wearable technology? You know, that you're talking about, Paul. Yeah, that that I mean, you hit right uh, nail on the head there with the wearable technology. You can tell if a guy, you know, hit some high speeds during a training session where he normally would not be uh, after two days after or a day after, where a guy's like, I'm fully recovered. I feel I feel fresh. And you say, oh, man, you hit you hit your 80 percent and usually you're at 60 or something like that on these days or something yeah. like that. You know, you ever take it's you know, very the numbers can be different. But again, it's just you get some sort of percentage or some sort of hard number. A player re- reacts to that They're like, oh, hey, you gave me a hard number here and I can like I can do this. And it just it just helps them recover even more because a lot of it's also that mental aspect yeah. of, hey, I can can I go again and can I play a game and. 72 hours or something like that and you know right. that happens. yeah that's when you get the buy-in too and it's like here's the numbers man you hit it I, I think that that little bit of suffering that you went through doing this it got you back this this to your numbers um right. that's the sell you got to sell it sometimes it's hard work 
Um, I mean, Reed's a great seller about this stuff, though. He, he sold me. I mean, when I first started talking up. about it. So, I just like talking up. about it because I've seen it work. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what about um, analgesia? So using it for any nagging pain or stuff like that. That's kind of big with a lot of the NBA folks right now. I'm speaking of the NBA combine and that that's something I'm talking on. I'm, I'm actually reviewing some grants that are submitted for BFR and, and analgesia. So what, have you guys done that for anyone that's got like a nagging injury pregame, pre-practice or anything at all, or, or thought about it at all, or seen people who had an injury y'all done it on. They're like, man, my, 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 my pain is much less or worse. I think the, uh, analgesic effects um, work better um, with players that are the type that I feel better once I warm up type of conditions mm-hmm. uh, or once I'm playing the game, not just exercising, then I don't think about it because some of the, they had to have used BFR and worked to an intensity where they're pushing themselves hard doing it. Mm-hmm. And then that sort of discomfort kind of central governor discomfort that usually says, yeah, I need to deflate now. Uh-huh. I'm holding my breath. I, I feel like I have the noose on. I'm like going underwater and I'm only six minutes in that person that's done that once or twice gets a much better analgesic effect. And I think it's just because they're they're uh, I like to, I liken it to, okay, now you have, Formula One car RPM range because you've you've put it up here in the intensity that you push yourself as opposed to NASCAR RPM range where that's where your pain is usually able to go before you decide I need to stop. Mm-hmm. So it kind of expands your zone because you're used to a discomfort. Mm-hmm. But I think there's the other things too with, okay, you're going to get this big rush of blood afterwards. You're going to uh, get extra oxygen delivery to some of those smaller sensitive nerves that are near a pain site. Mm-hmm. And the combination of the two ends up being the biggest effect. Have you done it pre-game at all, Reed? With someone with not it? Pre, not pre-game, but uh, we've done a pre, pre-scrimmage. Yeah. Uh, there's still some hesitation of it. it. They're worried it may make them tired. Not yeah. from the player. Yeah. The players know that it doesn't make them tired, but from other uh, staff that may be concerned about that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And plus, when you talk about buying, you don't want to have done a BFR session before a game or before a, a scrimmage or whatever, and something goes wrong to where that player then blames BFR. And so it's, it's yeah. just no. in their mental preparation, you don't want to add a, a stimulus that'll kind of shy them away from actually doing something that's beneficial to them. Yep. Yeah, for sure. So let um, I was going to mention some of our our goalkeepers uh, tend to work too hard in the gym or in sessions, and they they love to train extra hours compared to every other player for some reason. Um, they also play the position where they can only tie or lose, so yeah. that's weird. Yeah, uh, I think that just getting for example, one of our goalkeepers now used to lift heavy twice a week because he knows that's what he would do to maintain his strength during the season. And that was his habit, all these things. Well, I've convinced him to knock two sets off per day and do one BFR exercise on each of those days. And then after that, do 
the the full occlusion kind of five minutes, one minute for four or five rounds. Mm-hmm. And he feels so much more fresh the day before a game, so much more uh, just on it on game morning because we've had these noon games. He's like, I'm not going to change this. This is this is my go-to now. Nice. And as an older player, he's now reduced his joint load overall by over 20% just in those two lifting sessions that he took out. Yeah. Yeah. So I also haven't had to treat him for any back pain. So that's nice. Yeah, exactly. To, to jump on that real quick though, like you said, Reed's like, you know, you know, you have, you have two weight sessions during the day or during, during the week. I mean, we can barely, you know, some teams can barely get us a weight session in once a week right. because of schedules mm-hmm. and stuff right. like that. So if you can, and it's and as a BFR is so small and so easy to use, I mean, for ones who are trained in it to put it on someone and have them do simple exercises. I think they just get a little more benefit out of it and yeah. extra after that, that, that load has been taken off of them as an example for a goalkeeper landing and tr- landing completely on their sides, on their back, wh- wherever they do the, that impact, it does take some, take some toll on them. And if you can lessen that, I think they would, you buy them in a hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah, there's definitely these load intolerance, and, and even like read through in, you know, then they get these nagging back pains and soreness and all that sort of stuff. Um, that especially in the NFL, we've seen that uh, with some of these veteran players, or they've had a, a back issue, or like you said, Paul. I mean, schedules where you travel every two or three days. How do you how do you really work in a, a true lifting session and, and can control all the variables that go along with that? Yeah, the portability of this is pretty nice. From, from that perspective. So Agreed. Let, let's move into kind of some clinical and, and, and injury and rehab type stuff. So you guys maybe can just, let's, let's talk about cases where you've used it for certain soccer injuries, non, non-surgical, surgical, whatever. So can you guys think of it? It might be interesting to discuss. Um, yeah, I've got, uh, I've got, I've used it on ACLs, of course, uh, because, uh, post-surgery, uh, actually even po- uh, um, pre-surgery prehab. because of the prehab to get them strength up. And I mean, just like you normally would in the past to build their strength up before they have surgery. We use that quite a bit. We use that at least three times a week prior, prior to the player's surgery. And then post-surgery, we probably used it on a on a recovery day or on a strength day on top of his normal rehab exercises and it's been really well done really done really well for him he's liked it he's bought into it um again he doesn't like it on days when he's not in the mood but you know our players tend to be in moods and you try to talk them into doing something they'll do it but they won't do it they'll do it reluctantly but uh, ACL pretty much for us, and then a little bit um, meniscus uh, injuries and stuff like that. I've, I've used it on for, for, for us. When do you start post-surgical? Um, post, it depends. Um, I would say I was using it probably 10 days. 10 days? 10, 10 days post. After follow-up, post. stitches are out is, is kind of your typical probably? Yeah, probably. I mean, depends on um, depends on the orthopedic doctor, of course, how they feel about it. And that's, is that orthopedic doctor sold on BFR as well? You know, um, we've had a couple doctors in the past that kind of are hesitant with it, and then we just had to sell them as well. Right. So. Right. How about you, Reed? Um, with the doctors that are sold, I have it on their arms the day after, and their other leg the day after, and making them pedal the bike with one leg for ACL, for example, like just they're sitting on a recumbent bike and moving the other leg and they hate me. But then 
I've, I've actually had a guy's girlfriend call and say he's in a better mood. He worked out like <laughs> all these kind of things. And then they also stop taking their pain medicine sooner because they're like getting some exercise endorphins. They, they feel like a normal person again. They're not just sitting on the couch doing nothing yeah. for three days, seven days, whatever. Yeah. But yeah, same thing. Once the stitches are out, regardless of the procedure, then that's when it goes on the other leg. Okay. And build them up, start with the lower pressure, things like that. That way they buy in sooner. Yeah. And there, there are a couple of, these aren't BFR orthopedic papers, but, but surgical papers where they've, they've just done inflation bouts pre-surgical for one was for gallbladder surgery. One was for total joints and significantly less pain post-surgery and, and significantly less narcotic use in both of those. So again, this, you know, maybe being in a better mood and being off narcotics could potentially be supported by what's, what's already out there in the literature, some hypoxic event. Maybe just the, the old hammer on your finger. You don't feel your knee anymore. All they felt was that damn tourniquet annoying them. Who knows? Kurt, um, what about you, man? Any any specific cases? Yeah, I've, uh, I've used it with Liz Frank injury in the past. Um, and again, that was basically immediately when, A, the physician was okay with that and, and then making sure the stitches or the wound was closed. Um, like Reed said, you, you get creative and you put it on the other leg and, and you figure out ways to incorporate it as early as possible, you know, keeping in mind occlusion pressures and trying to get by in as, as soon as possible. Um, we've just, I mean, we're kind of at the end stages of a condo defect uh, where we had an OATS procedure. Um, and that was a interesting case just in general, but, um, you know, it's kind of like talking about different cultures and, and getting buy-in and, and even getting people who are, if you look at the American population in soccer, they are used to the gym. You look at the Latin population and, and some other, the gym is not in the soccer realm or the soccer world. Yeah. So getting them bought into using uh, blood flow on top of getting them in the gym is a challenge. Um, but uh, it was a good experience, and obviously it really helped with the BFR helps in, in minimizing atrophy prior to surgery. Uh, once he had his, with the OS procedure, there's two surgical or two surgeries scheduled, one with the go and clean up, uh, and then obviously waiting for the donor for that second surgery. So in that six-week waiting period and, and just really hammering BFR with all of his prehab leading into the, the second surgery, it was incredibly beneficial for him in, in minimizing how much atrophy he had post his second surgery. So um, we had a lot of success with that. Uh, we typically use BFR in all acute stages. It doesn't matter if it's a sprain or strain. Um, we try to get him on it day number one uh, following an injury. So uh, we have kind of really good success with that and an understanding of how we want to use it. Um, so it's it's been a really good adjunct for us here. Nice. Good stuff, man. So you guys, w- when do you transition off? Like, so post injury, post surgery, you know, you've been using BFR cause you probably couldn't use load. Um, maybe going after a specific pathway or something. When, when's your decision making that, okay, I'm going to start transitioning into moderate loads, traditional loads. Do you, do you just kind of move along until it seems like they can handle load? Do you, do you, have a specific thing you look at. We get that. Like when, when are you guys transitioning post-surgical? Go ahead, Reed. I think you have an answer for that one. I, I, uh, start them literally 
as soon as possible with a progressive load. Mm-hmm. But I will have them do it with the BFR on still, mm-hmm. just for a normal uh, kind of a three sets of eight, four sets of eight rep range. And then it decreases as the weight goes up. But I want them to get used to just having the cuff on mm-hmm. because then I end up transitioning safe to, if they had a hamstring or a groin. I have them do Copenhagen's with it on mm-hmm. or I have them do Nordics, but band assisted with it on. Yeah. So they'll do 75 band assisted Nordics. Ooh. So it helps them, uh-huh. but it's, it's helping, you know, so they're only doing 30% of what a Nordic would normally feel like. Yeah. But then the next day and the day after that, they don't have the Nordic soreness. Yeah. But they're getting used to that contraction. They're getting used to like being able to just have this capacity to work for long periods of time. Yeah. Because I mean, a half is 45, 50 minutes right. twice. Right. So I try to make the sessions last 90 minutes. Right. Even if it's a low intensity. And then I just gradually up the intensity. And that goes in terms of load or speed or less rest. Right. But it, Almost always, they still end up doing BFR three times a week. Okay. Yeah, I would follow the same. I we do we, but three times a week. It be it could be pre exercise or, or pre pre work or post work uh, um, movements. But again, short arc quads, depending on what type of injury, would say if they're in ACL or stuff like that. Short arc quads, long arc quads, loaded, unloaded. You know, it depends on what they. They also, the doctor is like, Hey, I want this person to be doing loaded stuff now. Okay, great. I'll put the cuff on them or I'll do it with this and then take off, you know, use 30% of their weight of the weight or wherever it may be, or even just a, a wrist or a cuff cuff weight or something like that. And still have them do these exercises. And then it's just, it's just, again, you're building the strength, right? You know, that's what we want. We want to get them that strength because their knee wasn't as strong before. So they had to be an issue or they just unlucky type of injury. But again, you want that strength so that then they have full full confidence in their, in that, in that, in that ligament or knee or wherever it may be. Right. Right. Yeah. I think, uh, the application is obviously going to depend on the injury. Um, I would probably say, and, and I can assume that all three or four of us will agree that when an injury occurs, we kind of have an understanding of timeline or, or what is our expected time that a, a person will miss. Um, I mean, here with our BFR stuff, we'll typically have them do it five days a week. Uh, again, that's dependent on schedule. We're, we're afforded the luxury of having uh, Chris Wolbert, who's our physical therapist here. So even when we're away, we can get a six session in on a Saturday if, we're, if it's an away game. Um, you know, whether they're doing some sort of biking as a warm-up with BFR, whether they're doing some sort of BFR burnout at the end of the session, uh, we get creative with how we use it. Um, obviously, you start to talk about the transition of, of BFR and endurance state and then actually mechanically loading tissue you know and that's a conversation we have with our performance staff or with chris whoever's going to be handling the gym sessions uh and kind of what we're trying to achieve that day so it has to be you know a collaborative process with the departments in terms of how we use it and when we use it uh and make sure it makes sense you know within what we're trying to achieve that day yeah yeah, and that's what's beautiful in, in your world, what we had in our world, the DOD and the other pro teams, is this ability to, to do it as a prehab to surgery or, you know, well, surgery, um, post-surgery to be able to go in and 
Reed's jumping rope again, it sounds like. Um, <laughs> post-surgery. I'm working out without working out. Yeah, it's nice. Oh, post-surgery, you know, be the more you can get them in, the better. So when you're using almost no load and passive, it seems like, you know, a daily, sometimes even twice a day um, is, is, you know, probably best practice, we think. And then tapering down to that three times a week after they start to get in that 20 to 30% 1RM range. Um, if you were to like kind of dial up what's the perfect kind of BFR progressions, that's it. Most most clinicians out in the civilian sectors, um, non-sports don't have that luxury. But but in y'all's world, getting that kind of volume in is, is great. So let's let's discuss soft tissue then, because this is something really has no research that, that's been published yet with BFR in a soft tissue injury like a hamstring growing. Um, it's been done a whole lot. Um, and, and we've got a lot of anecdotal. We, we got some pretty positive uh, results down at the University of Florida years ago and, and wrote up a little kind of fluff case paper, um, training and journal, training and conditioning journal. So not, not a real peer review PubMed, but just kind of we wanted to get out there that we saw these results. And then uh, a couple of NFL teams, same thing. And, and then read it was kind of two things from one was actually doing it with a Nordic type setup, um, which at first were like, holy hell, that sounds just freaking God awful. Um, but, but it had to be unloaded. So I think that's the key. Most people aren't going to bust out 75 Nordics with a cuff on and, <laughs> and <laughs> tell about it. Um, so, it, you know, we've got to caution people with that. There, there was a, a wrap paper where they did maximum eccentric contractions um, on the plantar flexors. And when they had the a cuff on, they completely mitigated muscle damage. So, so they did kind of what these eccentric kind of heavy, just crush a muscle loading programs were, but, but cuffed it and, and blunted the, the muscle damage response. So there is that thought, you know, especially read as you're talking about progressing these Copenhagen's or Nordics or whatever freaking European country you want to call them nowadays um, to, to do that with it. Um, but, but then also the nagging, what, what we really saw these nagging kind of repetitive hamstring injuries responded really well to it. Um, and kind of cleaned them up where the, the players didn't feel that, that tightness back there anymore. They could actually do the Nordics without the, the kind of miserableness that they would, would have from it. So from a soft tissue perspective, you guys kind of give me your takes if you've done some with it for, for a hamstring, for a quad, for an adductor, um, when you would start kind of what your protocol might be um, and just roll from there. I think that I, I can be a little bit more clear about some transition point uh, we talked about before was once they can get through the, the kind of 30 and three sets of 15 scheme with, with a body weight type exercise, if they're doing squats or something like that, or they're, right. they're down in that 10 or 20% one RM uh, resistance then once they get up to 40, 50% 1RM resistance yeah. and can still do the, the 75 reps, then I take away BFR and I go to uh, things that will do more. Okay, we need this much load for tendon. We need this much load mechanically. Yep. But soft tissue-wise, once they can, can do kind of those band-assisted things, I think they need to build up <laughs> enough pressure um, – pressure distal to the cuff because i think that outward pressure from within the blood vessels and all of that fluid that's trapped ends up causing enough mechanical stress 
that some of those, uh, I didn't feel that grabbing in my hamstring doing Nordics anymore. I don't feel that, like you said, it kind of cleans them up, mm -hmm. whether that's the flush afterwards or that somehow mechanical stress from the fluid pressure within the tissue, I think is a big part of it. And once, because once you kind of have that discontinuous fiber, you get less uh, transduction like across the fibers. So if, if you can clean that up and get a, a straighter scar, a healthier scar, or just better mechanical transduction around the scar because of that fluid pressure helping align things, I think you end up getting a better outcome ultimately. Mm -hmm. And that can be, whether it is the fluid pressure or not, I'm not sure. That's just kind of where I think this is coming from mm -hmm. because there's no other factor at play that would be due to building up pressure in the muscle from restricting the blood flow. Right. Cause I don't think it's, I don't think it's the cuff physically pressing on the tissue and getting like a floss band would do any of that sheer force. I think it's more the pressure from within the, the muscle filling with the blood and then astaglide. Yeah, well, that's an acute response, and, and I think there is an mm -hmm. acute response. We're also seeing this chronic change, you know, which mm -hmm. wouldn't be pressure-related. That's more of there's a, an actual potential regenerative effect at the muscle um, or, or something else. We don't know. You know, that, that's this thing we've been really fascinated with is, is, is fibrosis management with this, is, is can we slow, you know, the TGF-beta pathway and fibrosis um, through some of the things that have been identified to potentially happen when we do BFR. Because, the you know, one of the Achilles heels of a soft tissue injury in muscle is that you're going to produce scar. And, and that's what muscle does. Muscle doesn't like to just flat out regenerate. It likes to throw down scar as quickly as it can. Um, and that, that pro provides stiffness to the muscle. If you're a caveman, that's great. If you are a high-level athlete, a little bit of scar is, is pretty detrimental. And, and so... That you know, and we're hoping these fibrosis trials start to start to happen, where we can get some actual imaging of that. And and the problem is, man, there's just not a lot of grant money for a hamstring injury. <laughs> um, so so getting a big, you know, well-funded uh, soft tissue injury trial um, is, is going to take second fiddle to a bone trial or a diabetes trial or something like that. So we have to live a lot off anecdotals. It seems like Paul, Kurt, your, your thoughts on any of that? Uh, for me, I, to be honest with you, I really haven't knock on wood needed to use BFR on soft tissue lately, uh, other than just, you know, your tendinosis and stuff like that. But for a, as a muscular, uh, use for it, I just, we haven't needed, needed to, Good. um, for us, which is great. Yeah. Um, but, uh, again, I mean, it's something, again, talking, talking with us, us four guys right now, just, I'm learning even more, you know, learning how to, to apply even, when you know maybe it doesn't account for to use BFR or to use it, I would I was never really thinking about using it for soft tissue to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, but I would I mean again, but be but using the BFR with the soft tissue all makes sense. It's just we just haven't used need to, needed to use it yet. Yeah. What about you, so, Kurt? Because your guys' data is so good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's all the wearables. It's the wearables. Yeah, exactly. They load manage yeah. them so well. Yeah, exactly. Kurt, anything, your thoughts on any of that? Yeah, I mean, to echo kind of what were you just saying, I mean, obviously with BFR, there's a lot of theories in terms of metabolites that are produced, and, and we can assume why these things work. I don't know if we can 
uh, facts say that they do. Uh, anecdotally, we, I think we can all agree that they do within the clinical setting. Um, for us, soft tissue injuries are prevalent, obviously, at all levels, whether it's first team, second team, or our academy system. Um, we'll use it on all groups. I mean, my youngest academy kid is 12 years old, and, and obviously I think my oldest guy is 33. So we've got a, a good age range of, of, of men and kids that we use this on. Um, we try to apply it in as early as possible. You're trying to, whether you're going for the cellular swelling approach, whether you're trying to increase growth hormone. Um, I mean, there's all reasons as to why we're doing this. Um, and it, you're going to apply it in different stages of the healing process based on what we're trying to predicate or what we're trying to do in that stage. Um, so again, it's just, you have to, try to have a thorough understanding of, of what BFR is able to accomplish and and figure out protocols, if you want to call them that, and in, in terms of how you're going to use it within your setting. All three of us are, are in different teams and different organizations. Uh, we probably have similar thought processes in terms of how we want to use it. They're just going to be applied differently. Uh, we all have different players and, and their you know, psychological approach to when, how, how much they want to use these. Um, big thing is education, you know, and, and trying to empower them in, in terms of us telling them why we're using it and having them ask questions to us. It, it helps educate us more because then we have to do more research in terms of, you know, why the BFR is working and, and what we want it to work for and, and how it's going to get them on the field faster. I mean, it's, it's easy in this world to get guys to buy in because, to put a, a roof over their head and food on the table, they've got to be on the field or inside the white lines playing. So, um, <clears throat> I mean, they're kind of in the business of they'll do literally anything sometimes to get on the field faster. Uh, and so it's kind of in our favor. And, and again, it's just when and how you use the BFR and whatever other approaches you're using in the rehab setting. Uh, just to me, it just has to make sense. Yep. A lot, of, a lot of clinical decision-making for sure, um, and, and we're still figuring this all out. So do you guys all take care of kids at the academies, or is that primarily in your world, Kurt? Um, I know we do not, as dealing with the first team, we don't have that many academy kids. We do have young kids that come up to our second division team, or our, um, our S2, or I'm sorry, our Tacoma Defiance team, uh, which has been rebranded. But uh, other than that, you know, we – Maybe 15 of our youngest that we see, uh, I see. I'll, I'll see all the ages, um, but it's it's mostly if there's uh, something more complicated, not a, a run-of-the-mill ankle sprain or something or something, a re-injury and just kind of look at the whole process of what maybe has happened or where did a ball get dropped or some, just where yeah. did – something occur that maybe we can step in and say, okay, I can work with this kid for an hour on this day to make sure that the process is a little better. He knows his home exercise a little better or something like that. Cool. So the youngest, Kurt, you've done it on 12 year old kid. Uh, I can't say we've done, we haven't done it on a 12 year old kid per se. I mean, that's the youngest athlete we have in our academy system. I'd say the youngest we've done it on, 14 or 15 years old yeah that's a that's a lot of questions nowadays and, and soccer is such a youth sport in america you know um is, is this okay on the adolescent athlete 
the youngest that I know of that's been reported to us is seven years old, um, which I, I just don't know how <laughs> you've got a seven year old. You know, I've, I've done it on my daughters just messed around before. And, you know, they're they're nine and 12 and, and they're just wigging out like like freaking barbecued kittens. Um, but but it's been done. But but that younger adolescent, not younger, but, the you know, this like 12 to 16 pretty, you know, athlete maybe young female who tore her ACL. Um, we, we've seen it a ton on that. Even at, down here at our center, at the Center for the Intrepid, we would get to see the, the, the service members' kids at times if we had capacity. And, and they, they did extremely well. And, and getting muscle back on a kid um, and strength back on a kid is, is fantastic because so many of these kids, we just send them back in the game weak. Um, and I, and I think that's just a crime. You know, I wouldn't send my daughter back at 60, 70, 80% strength post ACL, potentially with a bone bruise just to watch her get arthritis in a few years. And so I think the risk reward is, is really there. And, and, and a lot of times we just burn visits, you know, the first, the first you know couple months of rehab is all the visits are, are primarily used up when you're just working on range and controlling pain and all that sort of stuff. Then when they finally are supposed to be able to start putting some load on and maybe get the muscle back, they're just released to the wolves, back to the coaches and going and playing. So I, I think that's something that will be interesting to see, especially in, in sports like soccer, where we see a lot of lower extremity injuries, ACLs just going left and right on these little kids. Um, does this become more and more accepted? There's there's not a single pediatric trial that's that's ongoing or study that's been published. We have a lot of anecdotals. Um, and we have, we have some of the big pediatric centers in the country that are doing it. Even, you know, one that, that does, you know, neurologic injuries, spinal cord injuries and, and things like that on little kids, um, that are doing it and seeing pretty positive results. But, but it'll be interesting to see, you know, at some of these clinics that you guys might have your academy kids go to is that accepted practice. I think it just comes down to they have it, that they yeah. have the, those devices. I mean, a lot of, a lot of clinics around here, when, um, at least in the Pacific Northwest, I don't, I haven't seen or heard except for professional teams having these uh, devices. I could be wrong. I don't know. Um, again, we don't get out that much because we're yeah. so stuck in our, <laughs> in our, uh, in our training rooms and left working. So, um, again, yeah. uh, I just don't, I, I couldn't answer that question for up here in the Northwest. Yeah. yeah. The, the big question. I know our, oh, sorry. Well, the question we had was uh, uh, the the physis, you know, does it do something? Because we we made a strong case about four and a half years ago that it 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 does positive adaptations to bone, and and from that we we got this, you know, the biggest BFR study in the world right now, a femur fracture trial um, that we got grant funding for. Just to, to, that's not the primary aim, but but we do think it makes changes on bone, and then we just had a a one of our papers from, from one of our research groups presented at the Academy meeting this weekend showing post ACL that BFR significantly increased bone density, um, in the BFR, ACL, femur and tibia. And, and what was real fascinating from that study is the control limb was, was osteopenic, very osteopenic at six and 12 weeks post-surgery. And that, that just, disuse the injury mechanism everything the the bone just completely starts to to look like an aged you know old bone um which was really fascinating so that's our first like pediatric trial we're hoping to do actually an animal model is look at 
what effects it might have on the physis. So far, nothing's been reported that there's been an issue, but but that's something we have to clear up for a lot of these pediatric ortho docs. I can say uh, we had a player had a, a radial, just a radial fracture, and he was, I want to say he was 15, mm-hmm. and was in a, in a cast for, he was in two casts, he was in a long one for four, and then a short one for four. And each time the cast was changed, the uh, the PA and then the physician were amazed that there was not very much play in the cast mm-hmm. because we we had done three times a week just cell swelling yep. on the arm. Yep. And then we had him ride the, ride the bike once a week. And yep. he was like, that your cast isn't loose. Yeah. And I was like, well, we've been doing this. It was kind of a... Uh, ask for forgiveness situation. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and, uh, when he took off the second cast and tested his grip strength without, I mean, I had the kid doing like this in the cast, but you know, it's not moving his arm or anything. He wasn't with a short cast doing curls, Yeah, but I guess we could, we could have, but he, uh, ended up having, he was 90% of his grip. Yeah. Just, just by doing that, he—I mean, he of course did normal. Fifteen-year-old kid, he would still pick stuff up with the hand and whatever because it was in the cast. But he—he he barely lost anything. And yeah, that's the not goal. That it matters so much in soccer, but that's that's huge. For a sure. Kid. Well, and 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 then we learn, and and what that matters for is the the elderly Fuchs injury, who atrophies like crazy. My mother-in-law broke her wrist years ago, and she still has a hard time opening a jar. And, and I always say this, I don't do BFR on my mother-in-law because I, I don't want that. Um, <laughs> she's an older Latino lady. Um, but, um, but that is in that population really where if you can keep their atrophy at bay from a cell swelling protocol where you're just driving, hopefully something that, that's reducing atrophy, that's huge. We, we did have a, a wrist fracture study with primarily older patients. Um, it was just presented at the American Hand Society, um, where we did it on them. No ill effects from doing BFR while they're in cast immobilization. Um, and, but it was a pilot. The primary aim was to make sure that we weren't having adverse events. And what was it doing to their pain? And it significantly reduced their pain and, and increased all their self-reported functional scores in the BFR group. Doing exactly what you're doing, Reed. Cell swelling, just some kind of light, kind of like wrist and finger or finger stuff and some elbow elbow motion. I, I will uh, say the interesting a, a thing, he he never said that his cast was itchy, <laughs> which I thought was I thought was something interesting because usually everyone's like my arm is itchy, yeah, and he never had that. Oh, that's interesting. Some hyperemic so effect or something. Yeah. What are you gonna say, Kurt? <laughs> yeah, we actually are kind of piloting something here. We got a guy who just recently had a uh, scaphoid fracture. I think we all understand the, the shitty healing properties of, of that bone in itself. And so uh, the seriousness of obviously the longevity of it being a, a dominant hand or, you know, in, in post-soccer and actually using that thing for your simple uh, daily functions, you know, writing, brushing your teeth, using the remote, that kind of stuff. Um, and so we've, we're, we've done a lot of kind of what you guys are talking about in, in low level and, and player swelling just to help with, with keeping that thing one, uh, bathed in some, in some blood, uh, trying to get some angiogenesis, yep. trying to, you know, improve cellular or, uh, blood flow to, to that bone to help give it a, a fighting chance. And obviously 
you don't want to pin it. I mean, even pinning it is, can be unsuccessful. So, uh, we're seeing how the blood flow can help with, with him. How far, how far are you now? 10 days. Okay. Yeah. Well, that will be interesting to, to see. And so we, we have seen that quite a bit, primarily with the fifth Mets, um, in, in football and basketball, um, these Jones fractures and just trying to track changes there. Um, like you said, that th- this angiogenic response, it, it's pretty straightforward. You know, hypoxia in a limb seems to promote angiogenesis. It, it, it starts from the bone. HIF1A comes out, vascular growth factor comes out. You get this angiogenic response. Probably has to happen with some sort of exercise, but but not not 100 percent sure. That's the that's the magic question. Um, you know, and, and getting back to these whole pressure things. You know, our ACL one that just came out and showed the bone became more dense from it, that was at 80% limb occlusion in, in those all those subjects. So it was kind of the pressures we use. Um, as we always say, you don't have to start there. You build up to it. It seems like it's pretty valuable. And then from Jeremy Linicky's lab and, and Dr. Mouser, who's, who's not there now, he they had a paper that recently came out. The angiogenic response was very, very similar to lift and heavy um, in a higher pressure the lower pressure didn't have the same response as well. So this is, I think, as we start to, you know, and that's what's great when we're all talking the same language, you know, what pressures are you using and when it's all kind of standardized, then, then we're hoping to lay out these protocols of, okay, we need to be at this pressure to get this angiogenic response for maybe getting the angiogenesis around these slow healing structures um, like that. And, and even, you know, we're looking at this rotator cuff trial. Um, what What does it take to get a proximal effect potentially to get a, you know, a collagen synthesis type healing response. So cool. Good stuff. Um, so I guess this is, this is Reed. I want to throw this one at you because it was one of your things. What do you think about why it takes people so long to come around to new things? Is it just cause you're such a forward thinker, man? And, um, other, other than I'm with complacency and other than complacency in general, um, I think it's because the, the way things get marketed to people in our position or just to any first team staff member, essentially they get told, Hey, we know the pressure is really high Uh, for you guys to win. We're going to help give you an edge. This is the new latest, greatest. This is going to be the thing that helps your team win and get your guys back. Everything is the best. Mm -hmm. So when everything is the best and everything claims to be the best, then everything that comes along should be looked at with some skepticism. Mm-hmm. Uh, it BFR is not a panacea. It's not going to heal everything. It's not applicable to every situation. Uh, it It's something relatively new, but it is not as new as most people think yep. it's new to them. Yeah. Um, it's, it's difficult because I think most people, once they, they reach this level of influence over top level players and how they are treated or take care of themselves, they say, Hey, uh, 10 years ago, these stim units or complex or macros or whatever, any kind of things like that. They said, Oh, we'll, we'll shift your fiber type. We'll help you do this. And turns out maybe it wasn't so true. But if they bought in, then they feel dumb because it didn't happen. Yep. Yep. And so now they're like, hey, what is this whole thing about you're telling me that we can 
preferentially work on type two that hypertrophies faster. How can that be in 10 years? I'm going to be kicking myself again. And it's just, it's hard for them sometimes to see something if they don't necessarily understand the physiology as well as we might. Yeah. Then I think that's the biggest thing that Kurt and Paul have harped on is it's the education and getting them to understand like, Hey, it's, it's a real basic principle. If, if you can follow our reasoning Mm -hmm. then, and, and be consistent with it for, I mean, really as little as two weeks, you'll start to notice some changes as long as you're not one of those rare non-responders, but yeah, it's, you'll, you'll start to get that buy-in if you get six to nine sessions of consistency. Right. And it's something that I think uh, if you can educate and be consistent for three weeks, you'll get the buy-in. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. I echo, completely echo that, that statement. And just, it's all how we can educate our fellow colleagues, how we can educate and our, even our orthopedic doctors a little more. I know it took me probably six months or so, five months to educate to at least get our doctor to buy in a little bit on it, which was great. He's, he's all for it now. Funny enough is he just had um, total knee replacement and he's like, Oh, when can I get on the BFR? You know? So like, it's, it's, it's just, it's, uh, you know, again, trying to get them just educated is the biggest thing for us. And then the courses you guys provide are great. You know, they come in, you you guys, your group comes in and provides great information and great feedback and stuff like that. And it really helps us then help other, other players or other, other colleagues to, to, to get uh, education they need for the use of the the device. Cool. Appreciate it, Paul. Yeah, to, I'm going to elaborate on what both said. I mean, um, kind of, I'm going to echo what Paul said about the course. I think it's, it was the way you guys uh, lay out all the information. I mean, it, it is dense when it comes to the science behind it. Um, you know, Kyle did a really good job of, of kind of dumbing it down for us. Um, He's good at dumbing. You guys are... <laughs> You guys, are, you guys are also very reachable, you know, when we have questions or concerns or even, you know, anecdotal data or, or things that we see that we're doing. Um, you know, Kyle's easy to reach out to through text or email. Uh, find out what he's doing or, you know, get some sort of information from him in, in terms of how we can continually better us as practitioners, but also help improve our athletes' health status. Um and so it's been a, a really good adjunct, I think, for us. And, and obviously, we're all uh, presented with new technologies and that kind of stuff when it comes to different companies coming at us and figuring out what works in our system. The biggest thing is, is how how does it fit within your methodologies? I think that's a, a big thing. And, and almost doing it on yourself, being your own guinea pig, your own lab rat, and, and really trialing. Um, and, and kind of pushing yourself to the limits so that you have an understanding uh, of what your athlete is going through or, you know, gen pop patient. That way you can uh, kind of describe to them how they feel. And honestly, like, like Reed said, after six sessions, after, hell, after two sessions, you know, these guys, they feel a lot better. They feel different compared to them having not done BFR before. And, and the buy-in is, is really easy and enough again, to go all the way back and, and not blasting them with an 80% occlusion right from the get-go. Mm-hmm. It's just getting them used to that stimulus uh, or 
uncomfortable feeling. And then every session, just pumping it up a little bit more until you get to the occlusion pressure that's desirable. Um, maybe 80% isn't going to work for someone. You know, everyone has different uh, pain tolerances. And, and I think us in our situation, we have a really good understanding of, of our players individually, uh, knowing who your softer ones are, knowing who your your hard as a bat ones are, and then you, who you can push and who you kind of have to mosey on along with. So, um, you know, it's been a great to have BFR in our setting. Uh, and, and again, we, we try to use it as much as possible in all situations. Nice. Yeah, that's that's great stuff. And then I think just reaching back on Paul's thing, I, the, I think the physician buy-in is is about to just be swayed. It, it's already very ortho accepted, but but just the fact that at, at Academy this weekend, the orthopedic, the biggest conference they have, um, you know, the AOSSM press release was all about the BFR ACL study um, that they were promoting and. Nova and Dr. Robin West group, the Redskins doc and the Nationals team doc, they had a, a, a huge, almost like a booth. It was a poster research presentation with videos about BFR and they're pumping that. So if you're seeing a rehab thing, <laughs> like being pumped at, at the ortho conference like that, um, it, it shows us that these guys are, are getting and girls are pretty excited about it, um, which I, which I think is going to just make it much easier not just for all of you guys, but, but everyone out there. So, you know, kind of our wrap up here where I guess a couple of things like where you see it going for soccer. Um, Cause again, in the U S right now of all the professional leagues, soccer is kind of our, our slowest kind of group that we're working with is a big group. Um, you know, Reed and I've have been talking for years here, but um, you know, kind of where you would like to see it going, where it's going. If you were to have the most ideal, soccer study or or thing what what do you think it would be um with something like this because then i'm going to write up for a grant and take all the credit (laughs) (laughs) uh i would say i i guess it'd be you know we are kind of touched on it the soft tissue stuff Mm -hmm. the the soft tissue injury hamstring injuries i mean that could be probably one of our big injury um numbered aspect of the sport um but also just having the uh um you know the ability to have a have a a unit for every athlete you know i mean there's something you know get it along and it's a financial thing i get but um but still a just trying to get that player on it trying to use it and getting them in um a daily basis would be great i mean i don't know much after that i mean after that just kind of it's all yeah it's the volume we can get it's great and it's on workers' comp in you, in the MLS as well, right? I know that's a, a kind of a, a touchy scenario, and, and different teams have different perspectives of that. But that that really kind of took it overboard, I think, in these other professional leagues. What, what do you think? Yeah, that's a, I think it's to be uh, no, to, to jump on that. I think it comes down to you know if if you can use it on multiple athletes, they're like, oh, hey, you can use this on other players and stuff like that. You don't need m- multiple units, I guess, in a way, but that kind of yeah. gets to the point where like, again, it's a financial, a, a financial aspect of, of being in our league. You know, we, we, there's certain things that they want to cut down on. We need to cut down on, but again, it's, we're just trying to get the best product on the field. Yeah. You know, we're trying to make it more competitive and the way we can do that is, you know, innovative type of techniques that may help. Hey, great. Let's do it. Yeah. So, I think uh, something I'd be interested in, 
going towards the future is, is uh, the team setting, um, regenerative processes and, and how we use it on a quote-unquote regen days. Mm-hmm. Uh, typically, where you have 11 guys or 10 if, if your goalie's not involved. depends on what club you're with and if goalies are counted as players at all. Um, <laughs> the uh, Having enough units or a unit that can supply multiple people to where if you're doing a, a team region on a bike, uh, getting them all on a unit or on a, a system to help with the flushing of, of, of waste from a game or from obviously a, a match. Um, but also even like post-career, obviously with all of our work comp cases, guys eventually getting OA and, you know, your hip or your, your knee, ankle, depending on the surgery they've had and, you know, longevity studies looking at uh, does BFR maybe in their current playing setting, does that minimize the effects of the toll of the sport or whatever later on in life? I mean, I can tell you, and Reed can kind of, we've had a, an athlete in, in common recently, and you could probably suppose he's going to have quite a bit of OA in both hips and probably both knees. And uh, would it be a good thing for him to have at home for personal use, you know, and, and when you look at what comp cases, you know, at the end of their career, is it something that can be financially feasible for these guys to have, you know, what sort of uh, applicability does it have with shitty joints? Um, I mean, soccer is a, it's a rough sport on, on your hip uh, and your knees, Typically with us, we'll do a lot of baseline MRIs when guys come in, and, and we've seen a lot of things that are, are labrum FAI related that may be asymptomatic, but uh, diagnostically they're there. Guys that are coming to the club that may or may not have had any issues previously, they have some sort of chondral fissure and chondral defects that they did or did not know were there. Um, will BFR help them with that, with, with you know minimizing the issues they have in a season, you know, it's a 10, 11 month season, depending if you're Seattle and you go far in the playoffs, you know, it's, it's maybe nice to have all these units around to help keep you healthy. Um, don't speak, don't, don't, you speak for yourself there, buddy. <laughs> I mean, you guys are off to a nice start this year. So, uh, but I mean, yeah, yeah. Thanks. So I think <laughs> oh, <laughs> too soon. Um, uh, I, I think there's a lot of applicability <laughs> with, with, with BFR. And, and I think there's a lot of ideas that us as a group have in terms of what we want to do with it. Uh, I mean, that's why we had you guys out at our, our, our PSAS meeting this year. I think we had 24 people that, that attended the, the, the course. And, and I think everyone had positive feedback because they understand kind of, how beneficial it is. I think a big thing with, with this and with new technologies is, is listening to your peers. And Reed was a huge uh, proponent of this and, and kind of got me on it a few years back. And that's, you know, when I tag teamed with the, the Lakers and they did theirs mm-hmm. uh, in house session. And that's kind of where I got started with it because I read someone I, I know I trust. And, and uh, you know, I, I think what he was doing was, incredible so it's like well why the hell am i not doing this and bring this into my club because it has a lot of benefit for everyone so right that's good what do you think reed yeah soccer soccer is one of those things where it's not like you you have the secret sauce for doing something that nobody else should know it's it's cheating it's you know it's oh we, we can't share this it's top secret like right. 
like, Hey, Hey man, like, like you said, we need the best product on the field. So I'm also a fan of, you don't need to be the best practicer. You, You need to be there on Saturday and occasionally Wednesday and Sunday. But if you, if you think our preseason is so short, I see this being something that I, I mean, ideally for me, if you could kick a ball twice a week for the two first two weeks and the rest is just working on getting guys out of off season mode mm-hmm. and you use low impact exercises, BFR, you do two weeks of kind of like the walk studies, you do incline walk twice a day for two weeks and all of a sudden now, okay, now let's do some baseline VO2 tests. Now let's start to add in the real load. And then the next two weeks, we start to introduce real load. Then you kick the ball three days a week. And then you kick the ball four days a week. And then by the time that you get to the last one or two weeks of the preseason, you're getting to a game speed. You don't have any of these acute to chronic workload issues because you just jacked everyone up right. into way too high of a load, way too quick. Yeah. And you're now ready for your 34 plus game season and you have a good habit of maintenance two to three days a week. Right. So it's something where, I mean, 18 is 18, you get three groups of six, you get six pairs of units. You can knock this out in about three and a half hours. You get good sessions. Yeah. And it's as much as it is financial and numbers, just take some planning. Yeah. And I, I think that's, that's where, you can you can really build people up a lot in three weeks if you do it appropriately, especially after a long Seattle season, a Concacaf push early in February, like things like that. These are these are the things where like <laughs> people will laugh, but you'll you'll start to see it. Yeah, and it's it's like uh, other crazy things that people want to say, but it's it's something that it's going to come. Yeah, people will we'll have chairs where they sit with a, a compacts on a program and their BFR will be, you know, coordinated to it, whether it's iPad controlled by a clinician or not is far off, but I think it'll be everyone's chilling in a lounge playing the Xbox and they're not really paying attention to the cuffs inflating and deflating Yeah, five minutes, one minute, but they're going to hang out there for an hour anyway. Why don't we at least get them some active recovery where then they could play FIFA and bond with their teammate. Yeah. Yeah, right back to your load management. I mean, it's it's all the way back mm-hmm. to that. So, yeah, and I, and I, you know, that's probably where we're going to see, other than all the post-surgical stuff, which is all ongoing, we're going to learn a lot in the next few years, which will help with those players. But, but yeah, the the recovery thing is huge. That's a lot of questions. And, and I think we're going to start to learn more and more just from the ischemic preconditioning alone. I mean, th- those papers are just coming out nonstop. And so we're going to see that from recovery and also from performance enhancement. You know, is there, you know, a, a pre-ischemic conditioning that somehow you enhance performance? Um, so I, I think we'll get a lot of that. And then the soft tissue stuff, you know, we, we, we have a hamstring trial going on at the University of Southern California, um, which is hoping to lead into a larger clinical trial with some pilot data. So that that's probably going to be the future here. It might take a while, but, but hopefully this MLS collaborative, we get a lot of good information from you guys because you're the ones that are seeing it out in the trenches that... that can give us good feedback well cool anything else you guys uh, this has been great i feel like i need to go kick a soccer ball 
<laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure we can. The three of us can teach you how to do that, and yeah. we can just keep keep running you. Here, you can be your uh, fitness coach on that side of things. Oh, screw that! Um, running involved. <laughs> I'm done. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm waiting for people to start trying to do uh, ultra training with VFR, but it'll come. Yeah. Yeah, well, everyone's trying to run with them, you know. I'm not sure if that's the best thing. If you can run, <laughs> run. Do some down days. Get on a bike or walk with it just to deload yourself. Correct. I think the uh, the down the decline treadmill walks with BFR are the next thing. Decline. Oof. Oof. Right. Yeah. Wow. So, All right. Okay. I'll, I'll just leave. I'll leave it at that. Um, <laughs> cool. Any anything else you guys want to add before we we sign off here? It's been great, man. No, I just want to say thanks a lot uh, for having us on. I mean, it's a, it's just a small group of guys right now from MLS, but I'm sure we'll we'll get a bigger group on on at some point and it'd be great discussion. And you know, it's always nice to pick other uh, people's brains and yeah. and get information. It's great. Your tip of the spear right now, man. Lead the way. Lead the way. <laughs> I'm sure we'll have more uh, updated cases next year. I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. We'll look forward. Yeah. We can get back together at the the PSATs and, and talk again and get some more stuff to get some of these studies going. Is there an MLS wide grant research grant like the other leagues have that y'all know of? No, uh, I would maybe no. FIFA and Mark, but yeah. that would yeah. be the only kind of stuff. Well, then it's just going to be these little 11 exercises before a game type of thing. Um, so, yeah. So, well, cool. All right, fellas. I'll sign off here. Again, thanks for your time, man. I know it's valuable. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for having us on. Appreciate Thank it. You. Thanks for listening to the Owens Recovery Science Podcast. Owens Recovery Science is a single source for PTs, OTs, ATCs, DCs, MDs, and other medical professionals seeking certification in personalized blood flow restriction rehabilitation training. Find them online at owensrecoveryscience.com.